And if you'll remember last uh, Thursday night, we went through the prophecies, the specific prophecies dealing with the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, what I did uh, with tonight's lesson and, and actually next week's lesson is I went through the Gospels and everywhere it says, as it is written or it is fulfilled as it was spoken by the prophet and uh, uh, pulled those verses out and printed them in italics. And I'll tell you what, Brother Ted, if you want to, the, the four pages, the masters are laying on my desk. How many people did not get a copy? Hold up your hand there. Oh, my, okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I guess do about 15 copies or something. And um, if, you, if you want to do it quickly, you can just run them all four on separate pages. But um, so... Uh, what I did was I just pulled out every place in the gospel. And, of course, there are some repeats because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are telling the same basic story. So every exact place is not used in the outlines, but um, every place that is referred to by these statements in the gospels is referred to in our outlines. And we kind of, I broke it up uh, to try to make it as simple as possible in Jesus' life in his death and in his resurrection and uh, we're going to try to get through his life tonight and uh, uh, it took three and a half pages just to get the scriptures and their fulfillments printed in uh, in just dealing with the life of Jesus Christ uh, sometimes we get this idea that, yeah, there were a few prophecies dealing with his, um, with where Jesus was born, and we went through about five or six uh, different passages of Scripture last Thursday night, and we say, yeah, there's, the Bible says a lot about the crucifixion and the resurrection, but it says a lot about what's going to happen between the birth and the crucifixion as well. And uh, Jesus' life, everything he did was a reflection of, of the scriptures he was not uh shall we say on his own everything that jesus did every day that he lived from the moment he was born until the moment he ascended back into heaven was literally in fulfillment of the scriptures there are so many things the bible says and jesus fulfilled them all there's absolutely no way possible Jesus Christ could be anyone other than the Messiah of the Scriptures. And there's no way possible anyone else could even begin to match up. I, I remember reading a book when I was in college. Um, it was just a new book out, and it was written uh, by a man who believed that Jesus Christ was... Uh, shall we say, a manipulator of circumstance. That he had read these prophecies as a young man and he decided that he would be the Messiah and he was moving and changing things and making things happen in his life so that he could be viewed by the Jewish people as their Messiah. Uh, now, if you really believe that at all, 
see me afterwards. Uh, you are in need of, of real help. Um, there's abs as we go through, you're going to find out there's absolutely no way Jesus could have manipulated circumstances as many as were necessary. Uh, by the way, the ones we covered last week, it's hard to decide where you're going to be born. Uh, don't try that at home, folks. It could be dangerous. Amen. Um, it's really hard next week as we Jesus decided what way he was going to die. Please don't try that one at home. Amen. Uh, there, there are people who do all the time, and it's, it's not, uh, not the best thing to do. You could really get yourself in trouble. Uh, yet Jesus decided when he was going to come back to life. And uh, though many have claimed to be able to do that, uh, not, well, no one's heard from Harry Houdini yet. Uh, Mary Baker Eddy had the telephone buried with her in her casket, and uh, she kept the, believe it or not, the Church of the Christian Scientist, uh, uh, wherever you see those Christian Science reading room, they were started by her, and they paid the bill on that telephone to keep the live wire going down into the ground. Seriously, they put a pole up in the cemetery and ran a uh, wire right down into the ground, and uh, they put the telephone in her coffin and closed it and then sealed it in the ground, and uh, they would check it out. Boy, I'd hate to get the service call on that one. How about you? Um, but uh, finally, I think it was 25 years or so after her death, uh, somebody went out there and snipped the wire close to the ground, and they took it all down because they realized that she probably wouldn't call back, and they were just wasting money. Um, but Jesus did die, and he did come back. And we are here today because of those facts, amen? And so as we, we look through this, we, we, the first point I wanted to put was two references here, Matthew 21, 13, John chapter 2, verse 17. They're printed in your outline here, and, and we're working on getting those to you uh, that didn't get them. And it says uh, in, in Matthew 21, 13, this was after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and said unto them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Now, Jesus went into the temple twice and drove the money changers out. Once was at the very beginning of his ministry. Once was the last week of his ministry. Matthew chapter 21 is referring to the last week after Jesus had ridden a donkey through the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, John chapter 2 verse 17 is at the beginning of his ministry. And it says, And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. Psalm 69, verse 9 says, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. Now, if you don't have an outline, turn with me to Psalm 69, uh, in your Bible, because we want to just look at that verse very quickly. And again, um, we we have said that um, there's um, the majority of them are in the in the back there, I think. And um, the uh, ver Psalm 69, verse 9, 
uh, again, what, what we're saying here is that many times these verses seem to be just pulled out and, and put here, but this is where the Bible tells us that these are prophecies. God wants us to understand that these things were foretold and that these verses, even though they may be talking about other events specifically, they are also referring to this series of events, the ones that they are connected to. And uh, we look at verse 9 of, of Psalm 69. It says, uh, it says, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. And, and this verse is very, I mean, it just describes the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus was interested in one thing. He was interested in people's ability to worship God. Now, we have to put the events that were going on in the context. The Jewish leaders of the temple, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Levites, the, the leaders, you, when you came to the temple, the temple had its own currency. It was like its own country. Now, if you lived hundreds of miles away, you were not going to pack up your lambs and your rams and your bullocks and put them on a ship and take shipping the whole way and carry those things up the mountain because uh, Jerusalem sat on top of a mountain. By the time you got done all the traveling, uh, your sacrifice might be sick, might be diseased, might get a broken leg, might, and it would not be worthy to be offered. And so... The, as a service to the people who worshiped there, they had flocks that were kept, herds that were kept specifically for the sacrifice, and they sold them right there in the temple. Now, how many of us are not, of, if you are not of Jewish heritage tonight, you're, uh, you are not a physical descendant of Abraham, would you please raise your hand? Uh, if you're not Jewish... Uh, uh, that would be the vast majority of us here tonight. Now, the temple in Jerusalem was divided into uh, three basic sections. You had the court of the Gentiles. That's where all of us could go. Then the next court was the court of the women, where only Hebrew women could go. And then finally, the court of the temple, or the court of the men, where the Hebrew... Uh, men could go. These would only be pe men who were qualified Jewish men. And they had to go through all the rituals and everything. Uh, you either had to be born a Jew or, or uh, really go through quite a bit to get in there. And then was the temple proper where the priest operated. Well, guess where they set these sacrifices up? In the court of the Gentiles. Now, if you and I were alive in Jesus' day and we wanted to worship the Lord, you'd have to kneel down there and try to pray while the sacrificial flocks are running all over the place. And um, have you ever been somewhere where animals roam freely? Um, they do things. Uh, do we need to go any further than that? Uh and that's where you and I would have to pray. And by the way, 
the the men who were actually running this money exchange, if you read your Bible, you'll find out they had a pretty good little business coming because money was determined by weight in those days. And so what they did was they screwed out the weight on the incoming scale to make it weigh your money heavy. I mean, weigh, weigh your money light, actually. It would weigh less than it was. And so if you brought in four pounds of silver, let's say, well, it well, only weighs three and a half. This is a temple scale certified by the rabbi. And then when they weighed you back out the money, well, now the scale said four, three and a half pounds, but it was only weighing three. And so they were stealing from you coming and going. And when it came time to buy that beautiful little sacrificial lamb, well, the market price might be whatever, five shekels of silver or something, which would have been enormous. Uh, we've got a special deal. This is a temple-approved sacrifice, only five times the going rate. And that's what people had to put up with to worship God. Sound like fun? If you want to get God mad, you start messing with worship. God does not stick around when you start playing and trying to make a profit or do something that aggrandizes yourself. How many of you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira from Acts chapter 5? God wasn't messing around. Both of those people left that church service in a coffin, didn't they? I mean, God is serious about this thing called worship. Now, I'm glad that he doesn't do everything that he did in the book of Acts today, amen? Uh, otherwise, we'd have to have a, a continual mortuary service at a lot of churches here, just drag people out in the middle of the service. But I'll, I'll tell you this, and if you'll stop and think about it, we've had some really special services at Open Door Bible Baptist Church. Amen? And then we've had some services that, I mean, you couldn't get a spark of movement if, if, if you brought a blowtorch in here. Uh, and what that is, is that's God coming because we're prepared to worship Him and leaving because we're not. Jesus gets excited about this thing called worship if it's done God's way. And it's one of the reasons why that is the watchword of our age. We are, we are being prepared for the church of Antichrist. And what goes on today in so many places with the name worship is just preparing people's hearts to accept the fake and, un, and, and totally ignore what is real in Jesus Christ. You say, well, how can I tell the difference? Well, number one, does it draw you closer to God or does it make you feel good? That's, that's what was happening here. Were you drawn closer to God if you went into the temple and paid five times the price with half the money you brought? 
it sure made those Pharisees and Sadducees and the, and the people who were running the trade feel good, didn't it? I mean, they were laughing all the way to the bank. They were having a great time at the expense of others. Turn on television today. Same thing going on, isn't it? I remember hearing one little preacher say, well, if God didn't give you that Cadillac you asked for, it's because you didn't ask for it right. He says, sometimes you've got to tell God what you want Him to do. Now, God, give me that Cadillac. And this is what he was saying on his radio program, I mean, television program. Nuts. Not biblical. God is not interested in serving you. He wants us to serve him. And that's why Jesus was so angry at these people because they were making people abhor, hate, get disgusted with the worship of God. I couldn't I wish I had a dollar for every person that said, Pastor, you you just don't know what goes on in some of these churches. My answer always is, I wish I didn't, but unfortunately I'm fairly aware what goes on in a lot of these churches. I'll never go to a church like that, or I don't believe in any church at all. I hear a lot of people say that. And I always tell them, I'm sorry to hear that you've had such a horrible experience, but the truth is, God's interested in what goes on in His church. And a lot of these places out there that call themselves Church of Jesus aren't because they're too busy making a profit for themselves. They're too busy trying to make everything appear the way they want it to. Jesus wanted anybody to be able to come into that temple and pray. Us poor Gentiles, if we were alive in Jesus' day, we would have to kneel down in the straw that the sacrificial animals had been in before us. You'd be there trying to pray and some little lamb get out of his cage and come up and lick your face. The people be talking loudly and doing all their business all around you. You wouldn't have a, a quiet place to get alone with God to save your life. Till Jesus came in there and made a lot of noise. He made him a whip and he drove those scoundrels right out of that place. And he said, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, not just you. And uh, that was a prophecy that Jesus fulfilled in his life that he lived. Jesus, and let's go to point two. Uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 6, it's right here in your outline. He answered and said unto them, well, hath Isaiah, or Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites as it is written this people honoreth me with their lips but their heart is far from me where are we going to look we're going to look in the book of isaiah amen 29 verse 13 says wherefore the lord said for as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me but have removed their heart far from me and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men now, Jesus could, uh, might possibly have been able to manipulate a few events, as the writer of this blasphemous book said, but there is no way that you can manipulate the hearts and minds and thoughts of the entire Jewish people, or at least their, their religious leadership. 
they had to already be there. And Jesus just shines the spotlight of God's Word on what is already existent. You can't manufacture this stuff. It's already there. You can't force other people to behave the way you want them to. Don't try that one at home either. It'll get you in a lot of trouble. Um, or at work or anywhere else. That's one of the most wonderful things about being a Christian is you can be responsible for your behavior to God and let God take care of everybody else. Amen? And, and understand that God wants us to raise our children and things like that, but what we do with our children is we want to lead them to God and let God get a hold of their hearts because once God gets a hold of the heart, then you can help lead them in the past. But if God doesn't get a hold of the heart, it doesn't matter what you do on the outside because the inside will never be right. And so, the I mean, unfortunately, in order to really understand this second point here, you have to be familiar with what goes on, what has gone on in the, in the gospel accounts as Jesus began to talk with these Pharisees and, and all of the different times that, that he had clashes with them. And uh, if you'll remember just one time very quickly uh, how that the, 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 the disciples of Jesus walked through a field on the Sabbath day and they were hungered. They, they hadn't had anything to eat. And they picked the head off of some of the wheat plants there and rubbed them in their palms and and begin to eat the kernels of wheat. The only problem was it was the Sabbath day. What did the Pharisees do? I said, they're doing that which is not lawful on the Sabbath day. They're eating. Well, was it lawful, not lawful to eat on the Sabbath? No, you can eat on the Sabbath day. But what they were pointing at was the fact that they threshed the wheat in order to eat it. And Jesus said, listen, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He said, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, meaning it's not all your little set of rules that counts. It's what's in your heart toward God. You know, how many times do we involve ourselves in a religion that is purely ritualistic. It's what we do. Now, as Bible-believing Christians, you can do the same thing. It's Thursday night. Oh, it's cold. It's going to snow. I don't want to go to church. It's going to be so late and dark when it gets over. I just want to go home. But, but I, I should be there, so I'll be there anyway. Is that any different than the person that goes in and makes a certain sign at this part and kneels down over here and eats this over here or does whatever the little rule book happens to say? We, we've got to watch ourselves because it's very easy to take the truths of this book right here called the Bible and separate them from the heart where they belong attached. Amen? If we're just going through the motions... Again, we're not worshiping God the way we ought to. And the Bible says that it was prophesied. This is what the Jewish people were doing. They were going through the rituals 
but there was no reality to it. The Bible is not in the ritual. It's in the reality. It's not in necessarily what you do. Now, the Bible says a lot about what you should do. How many of you, before you got saved, believed the Bible was a great big list of do's and mostly don'ts? Don't do this, and don't do that, and don't do this, and don't do that, but you can do this sometimes. No, that's not what the Bible is at all. The Bible gives us the direction to have a real life and to have real peace and, and to have all of these answers and the direction and the purpose. But that comes from the heart, not just what we put on so we can make a good showing when we show up. Amen? And that was a prophecy. I love this next one. Luke chapter 4. It says, uh, And there was delivered unto him a book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now skip down to Isaiah chapter 61. Right there it's printed in bold. This is the passage that Jesus was quoting here. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Now, this was the passage that Jesus was reading out of the book of Isaiah. And then he said, uh, let's turn to Luke chapter 4, because I want you to get this whole thing here. Luke chapter 4. I just put a few verses here, a few of the highlights. Luke chapter 4, in verse 20. Now, one thing I'll just let you know so you aren't shocked by this if somebody tries to bring it up. The words in the book of Luke are not the exact word for word out of the book of Isaiah. You say, but Jesus was quoting the Bible. He's the one that is the author of the Scripture. Could he not have quoted that word for word? Should that, should that not be exactly as it is written? And a lot of modern-day scholars, uh, they take the... Uh, I don't know what, what we should say. Um, I want to say simpleton's way out, but it's not, it's not just simplistic. Uh, it's because they have an axe to grind. They, they want to say Jesus was quoting from the Septuagint. Has anybody here ever heard of the Septuagint? Um, that was supposed to be a Greek translation of the Old Testament done by a lot of Hellenized or Greek Jews in the land of Egypt. Now, there's only one problem with that. Uh, number one whatever the Septuagint was that they're referring to uh, is lost to modern-day people. 
because there were some people that were supposed to be quoting from certain passages of this, and it does not match up with the document that they call the Septuagint today. Uh, the document that they call the Septuagint today uh, is a post-New Testament document, has nothing to do with the Scriptures, and probably not much to do with Jewish people or, or anything else. Um, the simple fact is what you have here is your New Testament was printed in what language originally? Greek. The Old Testament was printed in Hebrew. And so what you're ending up is you're ending up with almost a triple translation by the time you get to your English. And uh, I don't care how in the world you put that together, it's not going to match up unless you just went back and copied it out. Uh, that's the simple part of it, is this is a living document. Everything about it proves its veracity and its truthfulness. And the men that recorded this would have been recording it from the Hebrew into the Greek. Then it was translated from the Greek into the English. And it's just not going to match up, my friend. And that's all there is to it. But if you'll read the passages... The thoughts and the words are still there. There are different ways to say the same thing. And the wording is not even that different. You can, uh, But people like to argue about things like that because it gives them an opportunity to promote their great scholarship. Anytime somebody starts trying to promote themselves, you can watch out. You're headed for trouble if you follow them. What we want to do is promote this book called the Bible, amen? We want you to follow it. We want you to read what it says. And uh, don't get so caught up in the words that we miss what happened. Jesus said to them in verse 20, And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Jesus, uh, now you have to understand, the reason Jesus sat down was unlike our day where the preacher stands and all of the people sit. In those days, the teacher sat, all the people stood. And so as Jesus was reading the, the scroll, the, the Word of God, he would have been standing to uh, stand at the desk and read the scriptures and then he would have put that away, handed it back to the person and now he's going to teach on the passage he just read. He would sit down and he began teaching him and he said, I am the fulfillment of these words I just read to you. What happened? Did everybody go, yay! No, they didn't. Verse 22, it says, And all bear witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said, Wait a minute. We know this guy's family tree. Who does he think he is? And let's read on. He said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in this country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. And he began to give them different examples in verse 28. 
And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill whereupon their city was built that they might cast him down headlong. I love verse 30. But he passing through the midst of them went his way. Now, could you imagine this? I mean, these people are a murderous mob. They are excited to the point to where, as a mob, they are ready to throw Jesus off the hill on which the city is uh, built headfirst into the pile of rocks that they were going to kill him. And he's saying, excuse me, I know you want to get to Jesus. He's up, up front there and just keeps moving through. And he just passes right through the midst of the crowd and keeps going his way. I love that. You can't invent that kind of stuff. There's been many people that have excited crowds to the point of murder. And they usually end up on the short end of a long rope. Uh, in the old days, they used to call it lynching. Um, there's a lot of different things that have happened that way. But it wasn't time yet. Jesus just passed right through the crowd. But he told them. He wasn't playing games. I am the fulfillment. And, and you look at those verses that we read in Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Who was Jesus. The Lord God, amen. He said uh, to preach good tidings unto who? The meek. Remember the definition of meek? The meek are those who trust in the authority of another. If you trust in the authority and the truth of Jesus Christ, you've got the good tidings of salvation which Jesus came to teach us, amen. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. I mean... How many of your hearts were broken before you got saved? Jesus put them back together again. Amen. How many of you were captive to sin and its bondage and Jesus set you free? I mean, you, you can't invent these things. And yet the message is just as new today as it was 600 years before Jesus was born when Isaiah wrote these words. But I love that last phrase of verse through, of verse 3. Look at it there that he, the Lord, might be glorified. You follow those Pharisees and those religious leaders, and what were they doing? They were trying to get glory to themselves, were they not? Do you remember the story of the man that prayed? He was standing there in the temple with the publican. The Bible says, Jesus said he prayed thus with himself. Lord, I thank you that I'm not an extortioner and I'm not an adulterer and I'm not even like this publican over here. I fast twice a week and I give tithes at everything I possess. How good I am and how lucky you are to have me. It doesn't say those words exactly, but they're included in the meaning. And the old publican said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Five short words. Jesus said the second guy went home justified. The first guy, he was too busy trying to tell God how good he was. You know, God's not interested in how good you are, amen? Aren't you glad about that? Because if you'll stop and think about it, for every good thing you did, uh, you
you probably got at least three or four bad things to match it. I mean, that would be a pretty good life to have a four to one ratio, wouldn't it? And the ratio is not in your favor, by the way. Uh, but if we come to Jesus Christ and glorify him, he'll take all of our sins away. Amen. I don't know if we're going to get through this whole thing. Uh, no, we're not. We've got three minutes left. Um, well, we'll just try one more. Amen. Matthew 8, verse 17 says, That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Jesus came to take away our griefs and our sorrows. He went about. What did Peter say to Cornelius? Jesus went about doing good. What a wonderful testimony. But it was true, wasn't it? That's what Jesus did. And it was prophesied here. I mean, when Jesus, he broke up a lot of funerals in his day. You think about that? I love the story of the widow in Nain. How many remember that story? Here they are. Jesus has a multitude traveling with him, and they're rejoicing and praising God for all the great things. And as they approach to this little tiny town in, in the hill country, not far from of Galilee, not far from Nazareth, here comes out a group. And they're wailing and they're screaming and they're throwing dirt in the air and because this poor widow woman in the town, her only son, just died and they're taking him out to bury him. And so you have this group with Jesus that are rejoicing and praising God and this other group over here that are weeping and wailing. And, and I mean, when the Jews put on a funeral in those days, they, they did it. I mean, they did it right. They had professional criers that you hired that came. And the more money you had, the more noise they made, and the better the funeral was. And I am sure, because of the pitiful situation of this poor widow woman, that they were volunteering for free. I mean, she got the best of the mourners in the town just to help her out and comfort her. And, and I mean, they were making a scene. I mean, slobber all over the place and tears and screaming and... and, uh, and supposed to feel good about that and Jesus came up and he touched the buyer where the body was I mean that'd be like walking to the graveyard where somebody was being buried and trying to open the casket that gets you put in jail today Jesus reached up and touched that thing now anytime you touch some place where a dead body was, you became unclean. But could Jesus become unclean as God? No. So that poor dead boy didn't have any choice. He had to be alive. Because Jesus was not going to be made unclean. And that boy came back to life, and Jesus picked him off the thing and helped him down and said, Ma'am, here's your son. Talk about bearing your griefs. And yet, at the tomb of Lazarus, how many remember what happened there? Jesus groaned within himself several times. Lazarus had been dead for four days. 
And the shortest verse in all the Bible, John chapter 11, verse 35, what? Jesus wept. Was Jesus weeping because he missed Lazarus? No, he had already told the disciples. He said, Lazarus is asleep and I'm going that I might wake him up. And uh, they said, well, Jesus, if Lazarus sleeps, he'll, he'll get better, right? And, he said, and Jesus said, no, no, you don't understand. Lazarus is dead. Old Thomas, remember him? Well, Lazarus is dead. Jesus is going to join Lazarus. I'm ready to die. Let's go. But that's not what Jesus had in mind, was it? Jesus was weeping because of the hardness of people's hearts. He was weeping because of the faithlessness of the one who sat at his feet, Mary. He was grieving because some of those Pharisees, when they saw Lazarus come out of the grave that had been in there for four days, and you notice Jesus didn't touch Lazarus that time. He told other people, he said, you go take those filthy, unclean rags off of them because I'm not making the rags clean. Lazarus is alive, but he's going to need to take a bath and he's going to need to go through all this stuff. He was unclean. He was in the grave for four days. Jesus has borne our griefs. He carried in him our scorn of who he is, our doubt of his power, our inability to believe him. You ever stop and think what God has to put up with from us? That was all prophesied. And by the way, not a one of these prophecies that we've looked at that were actually happened and actually occurred in the life of Jesus, physically fulfilled as he lived here on earth. Every one of them is fulfilled just again every day in the lives of believers. Amen? And in the lives of those who reject him. The truth simply is this. We can go through all of these prophecies. Three and a half pages. But if you don't choose to believe him, you're still going to miss heaven. As a Christian, we can choose to believe Jesus to the point of salvation and yet try to wrestle certain parts of our lives back from him and lose out on the blessings that he has for us. We just need to be those simple-minded people that believe the words of this book. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this night. We ask that you would do your work in our heart and life. We pray as we go through these scriptures that you would be lifted up, that we would be drawn closer to you, that, Lord, that we would not look uh, to individuals, to different things. And, and Lord, I, I, I pray that um, I've not done anything to draw attention to myself. Lord, I, I want the attention to be drawn to you and your word. And we just pray that we would look at you and what you have done and how you fulfilled these prophecies. And, and Lord, be even more convinced in our own hearts and minds that all of our worship and all of our praise and all of our trust, everything that we are or ever will be, belongs to you.
We ask you to work in hearts and lives. Lord, we pray that if there be an unsafe person here tonight, that they would not leave without allowing the words of this book to touch their hearts. Lord, we pray that they would be saved. Lord, we pray for the Christians that have come tonight weary and worn with the struggles of this life and the attacks of this world that we would just remember that you are interested in our worship. Lord, your teaching is true, but you want us to live for you from the heart. Lord, that it's all about you, not about us. And yet, you will carry our griefs and our sorrows for us. Lord, we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's just stand together and we'll take just a moment. If you need to come and pray, if you'd like to spend a few moments at the altar.